This morning is from Luke chapter 19, Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. You can have a seat. I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's word, if you have one with you, and turn to Luke 19. When you came in, you should also have picked up a liturgy guide, uh, and which was the folded uh, document out there, and then you should have also received some sermon notes. Uh, you can thank Avery for that last week. He brought it back, and I was like, oh no, people are going to like it, and if they like it, then I might as well keep it going. So uh, some of you responded with some really positive feedback with that, and so if having some, some notes in front of you is helpful to you, then we've made those available. Within the liturgy guide itself, we have a, a blank page, so if you need just a blank page to take notes, I want to encourage you to do that as well. And what we want to continue to emphasize is that as we are preaching, I'm not most concerned that you remember every single sermon point. That's, that's not what's most important here and what's about to happen, that you catch every single thing that I say. What's most important is that you hear from the Lord. And so we believe the Lord has spoken clearly in his word. I cannot guarantee you that I'm going to speak clearly to you from his word, but we know that the Lord has spoken clearly in his word, and we believe the Spirit uses the word of the Lord to change us. And so as, as we're going through this sermon, what I'm most concerned about is that you engage with the word itself and not the sermon. But the sermon notes are there if they are helpful to you. Today is Palm Sunday, and as Josh said at the beginning of our service, this marks the first day of Holy Week. This was the last week of Jesus's life on earth before his death and resurrection. And on this Sunday before his death, Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time before his death. 
and he did so in a very memorable and unique way. We're all familiar with, with the story, I, so much so that uh, Miss Jenny Lee, she, she joked with me because even in years past when I was on staff here at Trace, uh, I don't know if Landon was just out of town or whatever it was, but I preached the Palm Sunday sermon like two or three years in a row, and so she would, you know, she nicknamed me the donkey preacher, you know, because I would, I would preach the donkey sermon, you know, every single year. Um, and so it's, it's really familiar, though. It's memorable. How many of you grew up in a church where there was some type of element involving palm branches on Palm Sunday? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah. Now, keep your hand up if you were Baptist. Was it a Baptist thing? Okay. All right, cool. So Baptists are weird, you know? We just kind of pick and choose what we like from higher church traditions, you know? So like, you know, Anglican churches, for example, they will have like a very formal procession on Palm Sunday where, you know, the people will walk in with the palms and it's, you know, very, very structured and everything. And then Baptists are just like, that would be really cute for our kids to do. Let's just take that and use it. Um, but yeah, so we're familiar. We're familiar with the story, the people praising Jesus as he's riding in on a donkey and and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in Luke's account here, he says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then he has this great line at the end where it says, after the Pharisees tell them to, or tell Jesus to tell the disciples to stop praising him, he says, I, if they were silent, the stones would cry out in praise. All I want to do on this Palm Sunday, I want to both take it, I want to take advantage of the familiarity you likely have with the story. And if you're not familiar with it, it is very memorable, so you will pick up on it very quickly. I want to take advantage of it and simply do one thing. I want to help you just look directly at Jesus and who he is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel writers include this account, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All four of them. And they do it for a specific reason. In each account, but especially in Luke's account, Jesus is entering Jerusalem as a king. That's, that's a very simple point here. Jesus is the king. And we see it very clearly in the way that he enters Jerusalem. But what we notice here is that Jesus is a new kind of king. Jesus is a unique king. He is a king like no other. So we're going to take time this morning to simply marvel at the kingship of Jesus by looking at three aspects. There are three aspects of Jesus' kingship that we see in his entry into Jerusalem. And the first is that Jesus is the true king. The second is that Jesus is a humble king. And finally, we see Jesus as a compassionate king. So Jesus is the true king, he's the humble king, he is a compassionate king. Let's look at each of these and just marvel at King Jesus. All right, so first, Jesus is the true king. It's important to remember that at least since the time of King David, the people of Israel had been longing for and waiting for a figure that they called the Messiah to come and to rescue them from sin and from all of their enemies. They, they were waiting on him to come and to reign on King David's throne forevermore. And century after century passed, and they waited, and they waited, and the Messiah had not come. And at this point, as Jesus is on the scene, they have still been waiting. They are still waiting for the Messiah to come, and they think maybe that Jesus is the true Messiah. 
the people of Israel actually help us work through our typical misconceptions about Jesus. All right? You see, some people outside the church, they typically think of Jesus primarily as an impressive historical figure. And as I've said in multiple sermons in the past, there are very few people in the world, very few serious people in the world, that deny Jesus' existence. Most everyone acknowledges Jesus existed. But people who are outside the church, they, they will turn to the Gospels, and they will look at Jesus' teachings and his healings and his miracles, and, and they're like, this is an impressive guy. It's, it's an impressive guy. He led a movement. He, he was really good to people. Look at what he's teaching. This is, this is, I mean, I can get on board with a lot of what Jesus says. Um, they applaud him for being wise. They applaud him for his character. They applaud him for his teaching. They marvel at his miracles. But for, for many people outside the church, it's Jesus is an impressive figure on the pages of history. End of story. Now, people inside the church also have a misconception about Jesus. And this is where we're prone to misconceive of Jesus. We think of Jesus primarily as our Savior. We say it all the time. Jesus has rescued me. Jesus has saved me. We, we sing Jesus paid it all. We do it, we do it every week. Every single week we confess this truth that Jesus is our Savior. He saves us from our sins. We believe that he died for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a confession we gladly enter into every single week. And while it's true that Jesus saves, if we're not careful in the church, if we're not careful, we can start thinking of Jesus as just a little bit more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's just our Savior. He gets us out of trouble. And that's, that's the end of what we think about Jesus. The people of Israel are instructive to us. Okay? The people of Israel were not waiting for a wise teacher. There were lots of wise teachers who came along throughout the history of Israel. The people of Israel were not waiting for an impressive leader. They had impressive leaders. They, they were not even just waiting for a savior, for someone to just get them out of trouble. The people of Israel were waiting for a king. They were waiting for a king, a true king. A king who would come and take his throne. A king who would come and lead them with power and righteousness and to bring peace and healing to the land. And what they needed is exactly what we need. When you think about it, I don't know if you've thought of it in this way before. What you need more than anything else is a king. You need a king. You don't need a wise teacher to, to show up in your life and, and meet with you every single day to debrief the good and bad choices you made throughout the day. That's not what you need most. We can find ways to mess up our lives with the wisest teacher in the world walking us by the hand throughout our lives. And we don't just need someone to come and take us away from our worst enemies like sin and death. Like, hey, get us away from these things. No. We need a king who comes in and doesn't just say, here, let me rescue you from sin, but let me destroy sin in the process. We need a king who says, let me, not, not only just let me rescue you from death, but I'm going to destroy death so that it will no longer exist. We need a king. And the Israelites were longing for a king. And so what we see here on Palm Sunday, what we see in this triumphal entry, is that by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the true king that Israel 
had been waiting for, that Jesus is the true king. You, you notice how he comes into Jerusalem. He doesn't just slip in, you know? He had entered Jerusalem so many times before, just walks, walks through, does his business, but it's different this time. It's different on this day. He intentionally orchestrates every single event so that the message is clear, the king is here. So, so don't allow your familiarity with this story to cause you to miss the significance of these details. Notice how Jesus takes control of his entry into Jerusalem. He wanted to come in the city in a really specific way. So look with me at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. So he's outside the city and he stops. And he says, I've got to enter the city in a really specific way. So he tells two of his disciples what? He says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So these guys are basically just asked to go and steal a donkey. And then the explanation is just, the Lord needs it. You know, I mean, <laughs> as if that would just be okay with people. So I don't know how that was going to work. But Jesus needs this donkey. Why? Why does he need it? Go and take this, this young donkey and bring it back to me. And if anyone asks you what you're doing, because they're probably going to, because that's a little odd, Tell them the Lord has need of it. Jesus is making a really clear statement about his identity and mission. But in order for us to see the significance of this, we, we have to take a journey back to the time of King David. We have to go back to the book of 1 Kings. And I'm not going to invite you to turn there. You can write it down in your notes. Maybe later go back and read all of 1 Kings chapter 1 to get the full picture. But I do want to walk you through it because... The fact that Jesus is riding a donkey gets lost on us. And, and usually when we think about it, we're like, oh, the humility of Jesus. Oh, the humility. But anyone who would have been paying attention at the time and they didn't believe Jesus was who he was saying he was would have said, oh, the audacity of Jesus to ride a donkey into Jerusalem in this way. And it's because they would have been familiar with 1 Kings chapter 1. Okay, so toward the end of King David's life, so he, he's the king of Israel. Toward the end of his life, he's old, he's weak. It's time to, uh, to, to coronate a new king. A new king has got to take his place. And at this time, David had sons, and one of his sons, Adonijah, he decided on his own, he wanted to be king. He wants to be the king. His, his, his father is old. He's wanting to take advantage of that. He wants to be the king. So basically, he decides he's going to just crown himself as king and so he aligns himself with the powerful military leader and a really influential priest and they meet together and they try to have this private coronation service but the problem was king david had already appointed his son solomon as his successor so david had already blessed solomon as the future king and more importantly God had promised that David's royal dynasty would continue, not through anyone else, but through Solomon. So the question here is we have this private coronation service, and we have David who had already said that Solomon was going to be the king. What's the obvious question? Who is the true king? Who is the true king of Israel? And so in the story at this point, the queen, Bathsheba, she comes to King David, and she 
she tells them about, about Adonijah's plans, and, and at that point, David is prompted to crown Solomon immediately, and he does it in a really specific way. He gathered a prophet, a priest, one of his advisors to come together for Solomon's anointing, and whenever you would anoint a king, they would just bring them out, and they would have oil, and they would pour the oil over the head of the new king, and they would be coronated in that moment. But before they poured oil on Solomon's head, they wanted to make a very clear statement to everyone. Adonijah is not the true king. He's a phony. Solomon is the true king. So what did they do? They placed Solomon on a mule. They placed Solomon on a mule. And and they had that mule ride into Jerusalem. And as the mule is riding into Jerusalem with the newly coronated King Solomon, the crowds gather and they start shouting, Long live King Solomon! And we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, it says that all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. And they did it because Solomon was the king. So by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey... Jesus is not initially here saying, you know, oh, I'm just, I'm just so humble. Don't get the horse, get, get the donkey. You know, I don't want people to make a fuss. Now, Jesus wants to be clear. Like Solomon, I am the true king in the line of David. And anyone else jockeying for the throne is a phony. Jesus is the true king. He's the true king not only of Israel, but of all nations. He is the true king of heaven and earth. He is the true king of every single heart in this room. Whether or not you're submitting to him, it does not matter. Jesus did not need permission. He did not ask for anyone's advice. He entered the city and he said, I am the king. You deal with it. Jesus is the true king. Anyone or anything else that tries to supplant his supremacy in your life is a phony it's a phony I I love I love how Tim Keller talks about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this day he says when Jesus comes to any city or anybody he says crown me or kill me nothing in the middle there's nothing in the middle with Jesus you crown him as king he is the king or you can crucify him We see that, we see the differences here. You see the crowds responding with praise. You see the Pharisees rebuking Jesus for not rebuking his crowds. You can crown him or you can kill him. And you and I are being confronted this morning on this Palm Sunday with the kingship of Jesus Christ as king of heaven and earth. And the question is, will we submit to his reign or will we rebel against it? But the good news is, Jesus is a king to whom we can gladly submit. Because the true king is also a humble king. So Jesus is the true king, but we also see Jesus is a humble king. You see, Jesus was not the kind of king that the people of Israel expected or wanted. But he's exactly the king that they needed. And he's exactly the king that we need. Jesus is a humble king. And we see this in two ways. We see it both in the nature of his entry into Jerusalem, and we see it in the reason for his entry into Jerusalem. 
So first, the nature of his entry. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a steed that was fit for a lowly servant. So yes, even though we have the allusion back to King Solomon riding on the donkey, a donkey is still a donkey, you know? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not this glorious war horse. If you think of Caesar, you think of Caesar. Would Caesar have arrived into the city of Jerusalem to be praised by the people like that? On a donkey, riding on the back of a donkey? Yes, thank you. You know, I mean, no, no. I mean, it's ridiculous. Jesus is riding on the back of this donkey, and a donkey was, was an animal that was fit for lowly servants, and it's because that Jesus is not only a king, he is a servant. He is humble. His entry into Jerusalem was a modest entry. And so in one sense... It's rather underwhelming when the king of the universe is welcomed into the city in this way. So the nature, the, the way that he rides in, it shows his humility. But second, and most importantly, the reason for his entry highlights his humility. Why was Jesus riding into Jerusalem? Why? Because it was time to die. It, it was time for him to fulfill his mission. And Jerusalem was the place. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to die for his people. He's a different kind of king. He's a different kind of king. He is unique. Most kings, what do they do? They send others to die for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus is a king who was sent by God the Father to die for his people. Jesus is a king who sacrificed for his people, who suffered for his people. He is a king who gets down and dirty in the depths of the worst of humanity for the sake of his people. He is a king who willingly laid down his life for the sake of his people. Jesus established his kingdom from a cross not a throne and this is why he was not the king the people of Israel expected and he's not the king that you and I expect the people of Israel expected a king who would come in and overthrow the Romans and reign in real time from David's throne in Jerusalem and drive out all of the enemies of the Lord and establish peace in the land but that's not what Jesus brought Sinclair Ferguson, he, he said it this way. He said, Jesus had come to take his throne. But he committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. What we see in Jesus' humility as king is that the one who is expected to crush Rome will be crushed by God's wrath. And the one who was expected to reign through a powerful political and religious overthrow will reign through unimaginable physical and spiritual suffering and death. His victory comes through perceived loss. You see, Jesus is not a distant and disconnected king. He is intimately involved with his people. Jesus is the kind of king that you and I should want to submit to because Jesus is a king who can sympathize with our weakness. We see a weak and humble king here. He can sympathize with our weakness. Jesus is a king who knows what it's like to suffer. Typically, people in power are so disconnected from what normal real people are dealing with on a daily basis that they can't even begin to relate. Jesus has all the power in heaven and on earth 
He has all the authority. And at the same time, he can look at you in the depths of your pain and say, I know what you're feeling. I've been there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a king who has the power to destroy death itself? To lead you, to guide you, to defend you, can at the same time look at you and say, yes, I know what it's like to be weak. Praise this Jesus. He's a king who knows what it's like to suffer. He's a king who deeply and truly loves his people. He draws near. And Jesus brings his people far more than we could ever ask for or hope for. These crowds, they wanted political liberation, but Jesus, through his suffering, is bringing spiritual liberation. The crowds wanted this nation of their own, but Jesus, through his suffering and through his death and resurrection, he brings to all nations a kingdom that will never end. And he guarantees a future new creation that will never perish. Jesus is a humble king, and his humility empowers and inspires humility in us. We need no more motivation to be humble than to look at Jesus and how he entered Jerusalem. He's the humble king. But finally, Jesus is the compassionate king, and this is where he takes us off guard. The humility is enough to startle us. But if you look at verse 41, if you look at verse 41, Jesus keeps surprising us. He is not like any other kings before or after him. Our true and victorious and humble king is full of compassion for his people. He is not the king the people of Israel deserved. Look, look at verse 41. Luke tells us, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So get the scene in your head. I, I want you to see this more clearly than you've ever seen it before. Get this scene in your head. Jesus is riding on this donkey to declare to all of Israel, I'm the true king. And he's doing it in humility and as he's riding through, the people are praising him, and they have palm branches, and they are waving them, and they're throwing their cloaks on the ground, and, and they're worshiping him. And then Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees, and they're like, hey, stop your disciples. This is inappropriate. This is blasphemous. And he says, well, if they stop, the stones are going to cry out. So take your pick. I will be worshiped. And as he's riding through, he looks out at the city of Jerusalem, and he sees it. And when he sees it, he begins to cry. Tears are streaming down his face. He's weeping. And then a lot of people believe that verses 42 through 44 are a true lament, meaning that Jesus very likely wailed what he said here. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, as the crowds roared with praise in the distance, he's looking at the holy city, Jerusalem, and he sees the future destruction that is going to come because of the obstinance 
the unbelief and the pride of the people of Israel. And he weeps. He wets the streets of Jerusalem with his tears. He weeps over the current state of God's people. Now, think about what Jesus had the right to do. He is the true king, not only of Israel, but of all creation. He had every right to look on the sin of Israel and respond with anger. Would the anger of Jesus in that moment not been justified? Of course it would have been. Justifiable anger. The Lord himself looking on his people in their sin. Jesus being perfectly holy. If he had responded to their sin with anger and wrath and judgment, he would have been fully justified. You do not meet the standard that is necessary to be my people. So I cast you out. He could have easily done that. But Jesus is a king who cares, compass cares passionately for you. We see the heart of God in Jesus' response. Jesus is sorrowful over hearts that miss the things that make for peace. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus' compassion means that he is an approachable king. Jesus reigns today as the sovereign king of every single person in this room. Whether you recognize it or not, he has authority over you. He has all the power and he has all the right to banish us from his kingdom because of our sin. And so you may feel intimidated by the idea of submitting to and following a king, especially a king with such power and authority. But the king who reigns is the king who weeps. He is weeping over you. He looks on you in your sin the way a loving father looks on his wayward children. If you are not in Christ this morning, if you have never trusted in Jesus, Jesus is weeping over you because he wants you. He loves you. He cares for you. And so when you turn to Jesus through faith, you will not be met with folded arms or a frowning brow. You will be met with a warm embrace, and you will feel the tears of Jesus streaming down his face. Can you see Jesus crying? Can you see him? Can you sense his anguish? Can you sense his heartache? He wants nothing more than for you to turn from your rebellion and start following him. He wants nothing more than for you to come to him. So what's stopping you? What's stopping you? He has all the power and all the authority to drive out every enemy that you've ever had. He has, he has come to die in your place as the humble suffering servant so that your sins can be forgiven and He's not looking on you in judgment. He is looking on you in compassion. 
If it is fear of rejection or judgment that is keeping you from Jesus, please see today that the true king humbly faced judgment in your place and now looks on you and pursues you with compassion. He not only loved you in his coming, he loves you now in his waiting. Jesus is waiting for you to respond in faith. And he is calling today. So don't wait another moment. Turn to Jesus now. Open your heart to him as his heart is open to you. And that's the two ways we respond. The two ways we respond to Jesus' compassion is with repentance, turning, looking on Jesus in faith, and being received and embraced. And then finally, with repetition. If you're in this room and you have already trusted in Jesus, what are you going to do with his compassion? Are you not convicted to your core to see how compassionate Jesus is, knowing how you are so prone to look on others in their sin? When you look on cities of Jerusalem, do you weep? Or do you grind your teeth? Do you share in the compassion of Jesus? Are you weeping over those in your life who don't know Jesus? Are you weeping over those in our city who have yet to believe? It's important. And church, I want you to see the tears of Jesus this morning because the moment that we begin to repeat the compassion of Jesus in our lives is the moment that we will begin leveraging our lives to bring as many people as we can to him. Jesus is king. He's the true king. He's the humble king. He's the compassionate king. Submit to him this morning, and he will embrace you with love, and he will lead you in peace and righteousness. Let me pray for you.